Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here are your hosts, Asha Davis and Rob Schwartz. Well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Cameron Day. Day. Hmm. Sound familiar? As in Shiat Day? Well, yes, it is. Cam is a second-generation advertising man. His father, Guy Day, co-founded Shiat Day. Well, having good advertising genes is a start, but Cam has forged a terrific career based on his own talent, wit, and grit. In fact, he spent the last quarter century or so at agencies both big and small on some of the world's best brands, including Land Rover, Toyota, Shiner Beer, Rolling Stone, and the Wyoming Tourism Board, to name but a few. He comes to us today with a wonderfully disruptive book he just wrote called Chew With Your Mind Open. We will unpack this advertising survival guide and more with one of the industry's most creative and energetic minds. Cam, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we're excited. You get to talk to an old friend in me and a new friend in Asha. So we're excited for that. To start things off, you know, your book was this kind of disruptive force on my desk. I'll have you know, you sent it to me and, you know, I'm trying to work and, you know, and I'm, I keep getting attracted to this kind of bubblegum visual that looked like a brain on the cover. You know, I see this provocative title, Chew With Your Mind Open. And each time I'm trying to do something, I start reading the book. And I would say that as I'm reading it and I come away with it, as you know, my wife, Betsy, she said, oh, you know, how's Cam's book? I said, it's great. She's like, well, what is it? I'm like, it's kind of gonzo common sense. So how the hell did this whole thing come about? Good question. So it came about, Rob, when I was reading my dad's obituaries, or I should say a blog post that was done where people were posting remembrances of my dad. And it was really very fulfilling because I don't know if you ever, did you ever meet my dad? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Here's the crazy thing about my dad. He was modest to the point where he managed to raise me to be a teenager, never realizing that Shiat Day was anything more than an advertising agency. Mm. Never coming home and bragging on anything that was done during the day. So I knew what my dad did, but I didn't know where he stood on the echelon of, of great advertising agencies. <laughs> and I think if I had understood that, I never would have pursued this. So here, so here you have, you know, you know, basically uh, someone sitting in the pantheon of Mount Olympus of advertising, and you're like, yeah, you know, he's just, he's just a guy, uh, you know, helping me with my fastball on the weekends. It's very funny because once in a while I get somebody who makes the assumption that my dad raised me to be in advertising. And I think he really raised me to be a free spirit. Mm. And I'm, in truth, I'm probably more like my mom than I am like my dad. Mm. I remember as a teenage, I was thinking, God, my dad could be a friggin' judge, you know, because no matter what stupid thing I did, I always felt like he was able to give me the perfect punishment. I, ne <laughs> I, never, I never felt like I was abused. You know, I felt like, boy, that time I lit the back yard on fire and it almost burned down the botanical garden next to our home my dad gave me a shot i didn't forget but boy i deserved it <laughs> versus now as an adult you know you don't get to give your kid shots anymore <laughs> so i just always thought he was really uh he had a wide girth for what he would put up with from someone if you were trying and if you showed effort mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got into advertising that all of a sudden I developed this deep, profound relationship with my dad that mm. very few people had. So to get back to the original question, I was reading the remembrances, and in the LA Times obituary, Lee Klaus said, Jay made me crazy, Guy made me sane. And in that, <laughs> and in that simple statement, I thought, oh, my God. That's exactly how my father functioned in my career. Anytime something crazy was going down, I could always go to the phone, unbeknownst to anybody else. I got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back and go and call my dad and go, okay, listen to this. Here's what's happening. What do I do? And oftentimes it would be, the answer would be something funny like, well, first off, Cam, your boss is an idiot, but we won't go there. Here's what you should do. And then he gave me the advice and nine times out of 10, because I didn't have a better idea, I'd follow his advice. 
and it was always stunning what would end up happening. Like yeah. I would walk into a new business meeting to show Spec Creative and have no work because my boss forgot to tell us we had a business meeting to show Spec Creative the night before. Uh, well, I want you to hold that story for later because that, that is a very good one in the book. But, but, but I know Ash had a few questions up front, so. Well, you call the book an advertising survival guide for creatives, you know, and, and obviously, as you mentioned, your dad was a great survival guide for you as well as you were navigating through your career. But it's interesting because we've seen a lot of books about surviving the zombie apocalypse, but not too many about surviving the industry. Why do you think that the advertising industry particularly is such a dangerous place for creatives? Well, because as a creative, you always want to believe. You want to believe 100%. When an agency says, we want to hire you to fix the creative or improve the creative, and you accept that as your charge, all the damage that gets done when you just try to do that as a creative person, once you mix in the ego and the politics and the agendas, you just really got to figure out what it is that makes you happy and be willing to sacrifice some things for it. And I think one of the things my dad always impressed upon me is he said, look, I remember when I first got in the business and I got engaged to my girlfriend who I'd been with for years. And he said, I'm not really sure you're ready to do this marriage thing because you're just starting your career. Right. And I said, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I want to do this. He says, okay, then just be willing to make choices based on that decision. Right. So I can remember having conversations where I called my dad and said, hey, I'm going to the injuries and type party and he'd say well no you aren't and i said why not and he goes because i've talked to people who've been to the end recent type party but what about that decision you made a year and a half ago and i go yeah, he's right and i'd go home and then you know monday would roll around i'd hear about the Andreessen type party and go thank god i didn't go to that but i think what you say here kim is, is to me is the book which yeah. is you're telling a story when you were just a young knucklehead getting into this business and right. I think this book is for people who are entering this business quite wide-eyed, quite optimistic, quite naive, and suddenly they have kind of a weird, kind, energetic Machiavellian prince. This is like, you know, Machiavelli's prince for young people going into the business. Right. So I don't know if that, that was, you know, part of your, uh, you know, what you were thinking, but as Asha said, it is a survival guide. And if I were just starting out in the business, when I started, I wish I would have had this book. Rob, I can't tell you how many times I almost put that book in a drawer and just said, you know what, it's just too much work. And I, mm. I don't know how to write a book. But the truth is, by the time I got done, what you just said to me, so many of my contemporaries have said that to me, that makes me realize it was all work that, and the book does provide some real value. That's probably the thing that gets played back the most is where was this book when I started, right? Yeah, I mean it is really interesting as well because you also kind of note that most people's families friends even have no idea what you're doing at work right exactly and so you really have nobody to talk to besides the people at work really because even your friends or your family members First of all, your friends probably think, you know, what are you complaining about? You have such a cool job and, you know, and your family just has no idea. They just know that you, you make some money. And yeah. so to be able to have literally a legend for a parent in the industry who not only knows the ins and outs of what you're going through, but can give you insights and advice of things as you mentioned before you would never think that that's going to work and a lot of the the you know when when you're lucky enough to have a mentor in this industry the advice they give you a lot of the time you're like i can't do that are you crazy and then you just do it you know? and then all of a sudden it's like holy shoot that actually worked right when my father convinced me to walk into a, a new business meeting empty-handed yeah when i was, was supposed to show spec and charm them into thinking anybody else who has the audacity to show them spec doesn't care about your brand and have them believe it and give us the business. It was just stunning to me. And, and you better believe it was stunning to the president of that agency too. Well, 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 you know, Ken, this is what I think is, is, is very cool about the book, which is the structure of it. And, and what you're saying, I think that's the close time story. And I think what's great is that, you know, 
it's it's a three act structure on the book. So you you enter in on a subject. So many cool things in this book, but like for example, the a subject is on brainstorming, right? This is so pragmatic, right? So you you kind of enter in on hey, there's this thing called brainstorming in this business, then and, and you then you you know have a point of view on that, which is terrific. Then act two in the structure is you tell a story. So you tell some great, you know, you've had some wonderful you know, moments in your career, like the one you're referencing here on the new business. You tell a whole thing on the brainstorm, which is great. And then my favorite thing are these pragmatic tips at the end, your food for thought. Oh, so fine. it's a 30,000 foot view. It's an anecdote. And then it's here's pragmatic stuff. I think this is just a fantastic way. If you're just starting out in the business, I mean, this is the book. Yeah. If, if you read just the blue pages, Rob, it would be 30 pages of probably what I wish I had known, right? Right. To begin with, with all of the BS stripped away from it. And I always think that's the part of the book you take to the bathroom when you're having a panic attack and you find the subject and you read the blue page and you go, okay. You know, it's funny because to this day, I still get that panicky feeling, but I've oh, yeah. never missed a deadline in, in, in all my years. So you have to remember, you know, we're not wired to miss deadlines. But we still have to freak out. Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> Part of the yeah. process. To, to <laughs> all of the, the young creatives listening here, having panic attacks is normal. <laughs> Freaking yes, out is. is normal. It's been happening to, <laughs> to the best of the folks in our industry. You know, shifting gears a little bit into your role now, your title, which I think is super appropriate, is Chief Creative Mentor. It seems like that's following in your father's footsteps in a very unique way. It's, you know, being that thing to others that he was to you, which is obviously a, an amazing mentor. And this is at your own company, Two Head Camp Brand Ideation. Tell us a bit more about the company and, and why you decided to start it. Well, I have a son who's every bit the free spirit as his dad is. And he has always been a very, very good natural writer. I mean, among the best writers I've had the luxury of knowing, and, and it's just pissed me off my entire life. <laughs> Your son pisses you off. Got it. Okay. <laughs> it's, the right, it's just the writer in him. I, I know exactly what you're saying, Cam. So my son says to me one day, well, I might, I don't know, maybe, maybe I should be an advertising writer. And I'm like, you do not want to be an advertising writer. And he goes, well, I go, well, let me tell you right off the bat, I'm not sending you to ad school. You know, that's that's just that's off the table because you'll lose interest after a year and a half and I'll burn 25 grand. So what I did with him is I, I had him enroll in a local ad school called the creative department that mm. was run by Will Chow, who is now mm. the top creative guy at, at Whole Foods. Mm. But Will was at GSDM at the time and, and between Will and GSDM, they started this ad school in Austin. And my son went to some of the classes and then he came home and he was showing me some of the work he was doing. And, and I mean, no offense to anybody here. And I said, well, what was the brief? And he said, well, we aren't getting any briefs. Mm. And I said, okay, I don't want you to take those ad classes anymore. We're going to try something else. Mm. I'm going to have you shadow me on real assignments I'm working on, and I'm not going to tell clients. Mm. So if I'm working on an assignment. You're working on the assignment too and showing me your work. Love that. What ended up happening was he handed me my ass a couple of times. He came up with an idea that was so solid for a brief that I begrudgingly shared it with a friend who hired me to work on the assignment and showed him a bunch of other ideas that me and my partner worked on. And he kept coming back to this one idea that my son wrote. Well, he ended up shooting at spec for a pitch. And wow. it became a big deal. So there's my son who's been through half an ad school course before I pulled him. And he's got a spec spot for his reel. So I finally owned up to my uh, buddy where it came from. And he goes, well, would you mind if I take your son out to lunch? I go, not at all. So my son goes out to lunch with him. He calls me up. He says, I just bagged an internship at door number three for the next three months. I That's can see one of my buddy Prentice giving it to a UT kid. He said, well, if you're good enough to come out that TV spot, let's see what you're really capable of. And then in the time he worked there, he ended up writing a 36-page brochure for a residential high-rise that proved out mm. how good he was writing. But the funny thing is, because he hasn't been to an ad school, like if I get an assignment for a naming assignment and I'm busy, mm. he'll flip out over a, a naming assignment because he doesn't know that it's not glamorous. 
<laughs> and he'll write mantras because he doesn't care that you don't give awards for mantras. He's really kind of embraced the writing of it without mm. picking up bad habits of thinking, well, somebody else can write the mantra because I'm going to do the ad. Right. Right. And so essentially you, you started your uh, two-head cam because of your son? Well, because I realized he's a millennial. He has a very contemporary voice. He spends his days watching uh, Adult Swim. And like mm -hmm. all his reference points are different from my reference points. Right. But I understand strategically how to be on strategy. So there were many instances when he was able to articulate the strategy in a more contemporary way. I don't try to be 30 years old when I write a, an idea. I try to come up with an insight and, and an emotional pull, and I just write from my experience. But he writes from being a 30-year-old. Right. You know, th th this, this is very interesting. I, I, was, I was with our, our mutual friend, Lee Clow, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I asked Lee, I said, hey, you know, Lee, what advice would you give to 23-year-old Lee about advertising? And in kind of, you know, Lee way, you know, he's just sort of like, well... I'm not sure 23-year-old Lee would go into advertising. <laughs> and right. what it was, you know, in Lee's way, you know, offhanded, but like, you know, stunningly profound. And I guess I'll throw it out to you. You've got, you know, a, a young son here, 30 years old, going into the business. Is there a business for our young people to go into anymore? Like, what's your take on where things are these days? That's a completely fair question. And if my son were to decide he doesn't want to be a full-time advertising creative I'm fine with that. I know I've now created a, a young man who gets enough freelance to basically mm. what he wants to do. And sometimes it's with me and sometimes it's completely separate from me. Mm. It just gives him a way that he can make enough to cover his rent. And he dabbles in all kinds of interesting stuff. He's making clothing. He's. It's really going to be interesting to watch where he ends up. And advertising doesn't have to be it. No, but I think you're hitting on it, which to me is, I think it's going to be, whether you want to call it advertising plus or creative endeavors and also advertising. I feel like creative people, you know, if I were, you know, my, my younger me, I think I would do a lot of stuff and advertising would be one of the things I would be doing. Yeah. I mean, I think the way the world is changing, all of a sudden that's becoming a real option if mm. you're disciplined and if you have a work ethic. Yeah. Right? yeah. Some people need to be whipped to do their best yeah. work. I yeah. was never that guy. <laughs> I don't think. And, and also to our listeners, you know, uh, young creatives out there, 30 is still young. You know, because, for, <laughs> because, you know, there's a lot of folks that think, you know, when I'm 30, I'm going to be doing this. Like 30, you're still, you know, as as these guys say, you're still a young man. So, you know. Listen, Asha, once, once you hit your 50s, you know, 49 is young. So, <laughs> So, Pam, we want to talk a little bit about your journey now. I know we've talked a little bit about that as we've sort of gone through this. You know, I'm curious, you know, you talked about, you know, on your website, of course, in the book, throughout the course of this interview, you know, it's very clear in terms of the impact that your father has had on your career. And, and obviously that family mentality is obviously still with you, even with your new venture. It, again, right. feels feels like you're, you're, again, following in those footsteps. You also talk about some of the realities and yep. some of the realities yep. that sometimes come with success. And some of those things are very, very personal. Talking about things like divorce and addiction and, and damaged personal relationships. And I'm sure for many folks in our industry, unfortunately, it's not that surprising. We've talked yep. a little bit about the demands and, you know, we joked around, but like panic attacks and mental stress are par for the course, if you will, sort of in this industry. And the extreme highs sometimes come with, you know, some extreme lows, as, as many of yeah. us are very familiar with. You know, tell us yeah. a little bit about kind of growing up, you know, as a child, you know, obviously your dad must have been at work all the time, you know, especially in terms of starting this out and you kind of seeing how things were. Tell us a little bit about that, what that experience was growing up and how that has sort of impacted you today. Well, first off, God bless my mom. I, I, I don't know how she did it. And I, and I know my dad had nothing but gratitude for And what he recognized in me that he probably felt that he could imbue we, me with is discipline. And I was a kid who needed, I needed to have freedom, but I also needed discipline. Mm -hmm. Left to their own devices, my mom would have raised a spoiled brat. 
There, there's no question about it. My dad being the judge, I just always felt like, God, he was just so fair. So I think as I went into the business, he really impressed upon me, look, you're going to have people waving stuff in front of you, but don't make the mistake of falling into the pattern of being the creative who rolls into work at 10 o'clock, goes out for designer coffee, kicks back and curls coffee for an hour and a half before his first meeting. He said, it's a recipe for ruining your marriage. You're going to be at the agency all night. Instead, why don't you be the guy who gets up early, works on the idea for an hour before you get to the office, get to the office early. The, the running joke was always when I was at McGarrow Jesse, I was the guy who put on the first pot of coffee. <laughs> I also had access to all those people who were walking in fresh. And in the first two hours before things cranked up, so much exchange of information could take place. So I think in a funny way, my dad programmed me to be a slacker with a work ethic. Hmm. Well, uh, by the way, Cam, I mean, I think that one of the, the secrets to our business, particularly for creatives, is, you know, getting up early and writing. That's when your mind is the freshest. I mean, some people, you know, have a, you know, circadian rhythm. They want to do it late at night. But whenever you find these very quiet hours, and I'm like you, I've always been up, you know, very early. There, there used to be an old joke, you know, in our, in, you know, the agency, like, so Rob, what did you do after you milked the cows? Did you write this? You know, I was always, you know, <laughs> up very early. But I also noticed was, you know who else used to come in early? Lee used to come in early. So if yeah. you were in the agency, you know, around 8, 8.30, you know, guess what? There was Lee. So you got a chance to chat with Lee early. Right. And it, and it was a different Lee than Lee has to be at 10 o'clock. Yeah. Oh, oh, without question. Because a lot of us, after you get up early, you know, around 10.30, 11 o'clock, you know, you were done. So that, and that, by the way, that was the time after 11 and kind of after lunch, that's when you asked Lee for a raise because he was like, oh, I'm so exhausted. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Take whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, in other words, it sounds like you guys are talking about being a creative with an account person mentality, because that's, you know, as somebody who, you know, I'm in strategy and I started in accounts, in accounts, you get in at 8 and 830 and because you know that that's when you can, you know, talk to people. and kind of No way, no way. Cam nailed it. Slacker with discipline. I think that is <laughs> it only took me about 30 years to figure that out, Rob. <laughs> But I guarantee you that was a morning thought. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, by the way, I think just on, on, on this journey section of our conversation, I mean, I think, again, going back to the book, the story time is great. I mean, these stories are wonderful. The share through the walls, a good one. <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the diesel presentation was insane. I mean, maybe just tell us a little bit about tapping into these kind of amazing moments, you know, in your career. The, the funny thing is, is I think sometimes we forget how important it is to scare ourselves. And mm. once in a while, an idea falls in front of you and you think, you know, the diesel pitch story, you would be arrested and deported if you did that today. Ah. Right. But I think the point is we were able to convince diesel that we understood diesel mm. by now. And it's not that we didn't show them work. We showed them an idea, one mm. idea. But we presented it. What we did is we turned the meeting into a diesel ad. And at the right. time, Diesel was doing the most stunning kind of, it's like they were celebrating porn stars in their advertising. And it's mm. just, in many ways, it was objectionable, but they were getting away with everything. Mm. So we staged a meeting where we had a uh, an actor sitting in a porta potty within the space we did it in reading from the founder of Diesel's book in an Orwellian accent for 90 minutes through the whole meeting inside that little porta potty. And we created this whole crazy meeting to where the client just couldn't believe what they were seeing. But the funny part was the people who were doing the meeting, myself, Joe McDonough, mm. my partner, the account people, we played it straight up the middle, Rob. We made no eye contact with anybody in the room around us. We pretended like we were just in a boring room as this acid trip was happening all around us. And then when it was time to show the work, and we thought we had a pretty good idea, but we didn't think we had the biggest idea in the world. The cue for our guy in the porta potty was to throw open the door and step out of the room and continue to read from the founder's book and make a victory lap of the room. None of us made eye contact with them from the agency. So I think the client just realized this is so surreal mm. that time he went back into his porta potty, shut the door and continued to read. 
we break out the ads and I think we went through the ads in all of five minutes. Here's 12 prompts. Dum, dum, mm. dum, dum. It was a visual idea. It was an idea that worked globally. They left the room and the minute that door flew open and our guy stepped out and did his thing, before we showed the creative, everybody in the room knew we just won the account. As you laid out here and as you laid out in the book, it is gonzo common sense. You know, in retrospect, you look at it, you go, of course, you would have to do the meeting this way. And, you know, to me, it strikes me, and again, you know, as part of your journey, you know, this kind of theatrical presentations, your closed time moment, again, where you did something very disruptive, not showing work and kind of really, you know, talking about the business more. Can we do this anymore in our business? You know, we live on screens. I mean, I feel like every meeting is so boring now. But when I read your book, it reminded me, oh, my God, we used to have such theater in our business. You know, that's a great question. One of, one of the things my dad told me very early in my career, and look, I'm a bit of an extrovert to begin with. I'm never mm. afraid to make a complete fool out of myself in front of anybody if I can land the plane, right? right. So I remember one time you said, no matter who your client is or where you are presenting, you have to present that work like you believe in it to the exclusion of anything else happening in the room. I don't care if your clients are sending texts to each other. Climb up on the table and sing that damn song you wrote as if you're Adele. And mm. don't stop because you're embarrassed because your willingness to embarrass yourself for something you believe can rub off on those people. Mm. And I never forgot it. The most interesting thing that should happen during the day is when you presented your idea to the client. Whether they right. liked it or like an example I'll give you is I wrote this crazy radio for a, a company called Central Market here in, in Austin. Yeah. And I was really having trouble cracking the code on the radio. I had like done three or four rounds. And then finally I went up and I asked, can I just come see you guys? We had just won the business. We hadn't had mm -hmm. much faith time. So I go up to Dallas and I meet all the players and it was just a, a day well spent. And then our client said one thing to me that completely shifted the way I thought about the creative. He said, I was going to have you come up yesterday, but we had to present to all of our teams. Stephen and I dress up like fruit to talk to all the managers of the stores. And I'm looking at these two Dallas business executives thinking these guys dress up like fruit. Holy Christ, I've forgotten the idea of being silly. Mm. So I went back to the agency and I wrote the silliest stuff I've ever written. I mm. said, what if Dr. Seuss was a foodie? And what if he was a little bit deranged? And it led to this voice I created for radio. And when I'd call and present the work, they were just mesmerized. Not because I was the best voice talent, but because mm. I'd go up and say, okay, here's your holiday spot. Twas a yuletide conundrum, in the words of my spouse. See, nobody wants to break bread in our house. Ants were kvetching, uncles muttered, please no. Not another dry turkey, you can't make me go. And I'd just <laughs> keep going for 60 seconds, and then I'd get to the end, and the head guy would always go, approve. <laughs> and it never changed a word. That's great. And then I got a great voiceover and I convinced them that they should let us improv when I work with the voiceover. So it even elevated the work even more because he would come up with stuff that I didn't see. But it it was a perfect example of making a fool out of yourself and then the client loving you for it. Yeah. I love that. I love that lesson and like believing in what you're saying and believing in the work because I, I definitely agree. It's a lot. I mean, even when we were in person, it's tough because as a creative and there's, I feel like now there's so many more factors at play, you know, and your ideas are getting killed sometimes before they even make it yeah. to the clients because of many different factors, you know, and there's so many mediums and formats and things that need mm. to be taken into account, you know, and no disrespect to clients, but budgets are always this weird nebulous thing where either they don't want to tell you what it is, or it's way too little for what yeah. they want, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I think that just the magic of, you know what, if people are looking at their phones, which is a real thing while you're trying to present, 
get up on the freaking table. You talked about like, you know, doing comedy. When I do comedy, sometimes people are on their phone. Not everybody's paying attention, but you have to kind of command the room in, in a way. You yeah, know? Yeah. It's a lot harder on this Zoom life that we're right. living, but it's not impossible. But I do think you have to, to your point, Cam, like consciously do it. Like you have to go in your mind, go into the meeting being like, come hell or high water. What I have to say is going to be the highlight yeah. of somebody's yeah. day, you know? Mm. You know, the other thing that I've discovered about, I'm a big believer in always rehearsing before you go mm. into the meeting, because there's no greater feeling than going into a meeting where everybody hits their marks, even if they don't buy it. Mm. And I've always found that the dynamic that works best for me is when you really get to where you trust the team, all of a sudden, your account person is defending the creative and the creative, you can defend the strategy. And mm. I think your clients kind of go, oh, wait a minute, what's happening here? This is like... I just think it takes clients out of their game completely when you start reversing your roles. Mm. They realize, oh God, these guys are so aligned. Maybe this is the right idea. Right. Right. Just talking a little bit more about kind of your path and and you know, obviously the great stuff that you have to offer. One of the other things that's happening kind of in the world today and decisions that, you know, up and coming creatives need to grapple with are, you know, there's many different places you can be a creative, yeah. you know, so in mm. your career, Cam, you've been at some of the biggest agencies in the world, you know, the Ogilvy's, the Saatchi's, the BBDO's of the world, although I didn't see Shide on there. I didn't, I didn't know if that was uh, on purpose or not. There was a moment in time where we got close on Shide. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and Rob, you could speak to that too. But I knew I didn't want to leave Austin, Texas. Right. I mean, I just knew it in my heart. And it's the one thing that my dad and I disagreed over that I knew I made the right decision when I got here. It's just so interesting because as you can see, even just looking at your resume, you can see how you've sort of followed your heart, which kind of goes into my next question, right? It's like you've been at big agencies, as I mentioned, but also smaller to, to mid-sized shops. You've lived in yep. big cities like LA. And as you mentioned, Austin, and I think I saw, you know, Denver, Colorado on there as well. Yep. In your mind and just as you're thinking, because obviously it's very easy, especially as an up and coming creative to get excited by shiny objects, but just yeah. curious as to A, your thoughts on big versus small sort of midsize and B, putting, you know, yourself first, as you, like you said, you know, yeah. you just wanted to live in, in Austin, you know, how, how do you sort okay. of grapple with that? Cover your ears, Rob. <laughs> I know where Small, small, small. For me. for me, it's always about small, but mm. it's also for very selfish reasons. I never stopped writing. And that was a selfish decision, but mm. it's also a decision that probably separated me as an, an ECD or a GCD from a CCO. I know that, that it just makes me so happy to continue to play with words every day. And I also, I realized that if I go to smaller markets, I can be the ECD of this agency and say, but I'm still a working ECD. And, mm. and just the financials, it made sense. Now mm. it caused other conflicts. And when you have to start judging your own work versus other people's work and you're the boss, that's where I really have to lean into my dad's fair filter. Mm. And I need to be willing to be beaten and then I need to get behind the best idea and prove to the troops, no, it really isn't about whether it came out of my brain. It's whether it's the best idea in the room. And right. if it is, we're all chasing it. Right. Yeah, I, I have a young writer I worked with on Wyoming tourism, and we made a pact when we sold an idea that had a heavy amount of outdoor board usage. And our pact was, we're not going to ever tell anybody who wrote what line. Mm. We're going to write the best batch of outdoor boards we've ever seen mm. for tourism, and we're going to share it all. And and when you start having conversations like that, you realize, oh my God, I've got 11 outdoor boards in my book, and I, and I wouldn't trade any of them. I wrote half of them. Ricky Lambert wrote half of them. But the real joy is we both show all of them as our work. Yeah, great. That's great. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm with you. I think so, some of that seems to be forgotten these days that we you know, put the needs of the brand first. I think everybody's very, uh, you know, obsessed with themselves and what about me and I want this and I want that. And I, I like in your book, you know, we've got to go from me to we, you know, and I think we're losing that. 
And I think that we're getting into trouble because we're, we're, we're just we're too obsessed with the gossip of the agency and we're not obsessed with the client's business. It's not a popular opinion, but I'll be really frank, and I know this will piss off a few people, but what the hell. I have tremendous respect for the work that Barton Graff used to do. Mm. They did funny stuff. They worked on big brands. But I can honestly say they never did a single thing that made me want to sample the product. Mm. Versus when Crispin convinced Domino's to admit that the food is shit and that they're <laughs> going to. I just remember when I saw that campaign, I was all, holy Christ, I want to order Domino's pizza right now. Right. Because I won't believe that. Right. So to me, there's a difference. Barton Fink was great on the world stage as a creative agency. Right. People behind that Domino's campaign, the planner, the initial creatives, my hats are off to them because they did a much tougher thing. Yeah. They got to tell the truth and they did repair that brand. And now they're a technology brand, which fascinates me. Right. Well, I think one of the things you're hitting on is that the Domino's work was persuasive. And, yes. you know, that word persuasion, I mean, it only shows up, you know, like, you know, every eight months, you know, in, in, <laughs> in our business. Oh, right. We're supposed to persuade people. Oh, right. Rob, when I saw Moldy Whopper, all I could think was I never would have approved that idea as a creator no. because at the end of the day, that Moldy Whopper is burned in my brain. And, and even if the point is that it has no artificial ingredients, so it ages like real food ages, I'm sorry. You put a turd on a plate in front of me, expecting <laughs> me to eat it. No, but I think what you say is very interesting because with both Moldy Whopper and, you know, the, the sort of Domino's mea culpa, it's both the same strategic tactic. We're going to yes. showcase the negativity. But there's something about the Domino's turn and I think maybe it was the evidence of here's the problem. We're with you. We're with you, consumer. Yeah, we get it. We, we're, we're not where we need to be. But here's how we're going to solve it. There was something about that that really made you go, you know, I have to try this thing. I remember they did one spot to where they identified one person in a zip code who had not tried the new pizza and directed right. their ad specifically to that person. Right. That's That's when I thought, oh, my God. I mean, it's like. It, it was one of those ideas like Snickers, you're not yourself when you're hungry, right? Yeah. There are ideas where trained chimpanzees could execute that work. Yeah. And those are the ones that I, I'm so enamored with thinking like you're not yourself when you're hungry. I never saw the brief. But when I look right. at that, I can guess what the brief said. Candy bar sales are down. People are caring about what they put in their bodies. Sugar's not good for you. How do we do something yeah. great? Hey, meal replacement. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because the other thing that both Domino's and Snickers have in common that the Whopper campaign doesn't is that they are not looking at their competitors. They're not trying to juxtapose mm. themselves like Domino's okay. wasn't saying, but our cardboard pizza was still better than pizza. They were just like, it's it's <laughs> gross. And we hired new cooks and we figured it out. And yep. same thing with, with Snickers. They weren't saying, well, this is better than X candy bar versus Moldy Whopper was basically in complete response to the aged McDonald's burgers going viral on social media, you know, and it was like, well, McDonald's, it still looks like that five years later and, and ours gets moldy. So I do think there's also something where it's like resting on your own, you know, laurels to some degree in that capacity. Uh, by the way, truth be told, I still think the best, apart from Little Caesars, the the, the best pizza work was Shia Day's Pizza Hut people campaign, which works. <laughs> I completely agree with you, and I'll tell you yeah, what, part of it. what I find so interesting about that, those of us who remember that campaign, it was so counter to how fast food campaigns worked. But here's yeah. what I love about Shiat Day. There was a point of view to where you go, yeah, nobody wants to do talking heads. What was the yeah. piece of that campaign? It was talking heads. Right. Granted, <laughs> heads were interesting and had something interesting to say. Do you know what shut down that campaign, Rob? No. No, oh, this is inside baseball. There was a coalition of businesses called the Little Brothers of Italy who fired off postcards to Pizza Hut going, you have a whole campaign built around people talking with their mouths full of food and you're making us all look bad by doing it. Whoa. And that killed the campaign, which led to the Rich Hall Rolling Pizza Institute 
which didn't work out so well. Oh my heaven. Wow. I never knew that. That yeah. is amazing. But the other thing I find fascinating is, like you say, it was a talking head. It was just a person on screen. And right. we're like, we're just talking here. We're just people on screens. And there's a part of me, again, I'm just feeling this. I think that there is a role for television once again to just have someone on screen talking to you. You know, if you, you think know, of some of the great work, you know, that came out of the UK, you know, just, you know, even John Cleese doing Schweppes uh, or even Magnavox when he, when he came over here to the U.S. to right, do work, right, he was right. just a guy talking to you. Well, I think we're forgetting that just the simple human connection can do it, right? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's God it. Only, God only knows there are creative people good. Kathy Hoppenstall. Yes. Kathy, love Kathy Hoppenstall could write the phone book and I'd read everywhere, right? Well, she, she would rewrite the phone book. <laughs> she, like, I would I would love to be the creative director who says to Kathy Epistol, okay, here's the assignment, Kathy. You need to do this, but the budget is $50 and you can't use any visuals. I guarantee she would write you something to where people would be falling on the floor. So I think we get so caught up in production values and techniques. And look, yeah. I've linked the techniques myself. Sometimes it's easy to just load so much crap into something to where the idea gets lost within it. But look, but look at TikTok. Asha, I'm sorry, we 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 have ripped up the script here. <laughs> but we have Cam here. He's got of a good day. But Cam, look at TikTok. What is TikTok? TikTok is Pizza Hut people. It's That's just right. people talking to you. I mean it's crazy. Yep. Yeah. We're back well, I mean, we're back to where we were. Back to the start. And that really gets back to small. One of the yeah. things that attracts me to smaller agencies and even smaller budgets is mm. that it forces you to think more efficiently. Right. And one of the things that McGarry Jesse did so well is they would look within brands for the answer. And that's yeah. not always the way, but the work always came out of fundamental truths about the brand. The, the Shiner yes. beer stuff we did, it all came out of the insight that every drop of Shiner still comes out of Shiner Brewery. Every mm. drop. Yeah. So then we started saying, well, what does that tell you about the people who work there? And we ended up doing a campaign all about the brewery workers and what it meant to love your job so much that you, like, we're talking about podunk. I remember I went to Shiner and I saw it and I thought, oh, my God, this is Mayberry RFD. This right. still exists. Like, there's one convenience store and there's one restaurant and there's all these people who are absolutely thrilled to work at the brewery. And we would do questionnaires with them just to, to get material. And sure. I remember asking somebody, what's the best part about working at the brewery? And the brewery guy's answer to me was close to home. Like, <laughs> you're going to get, oh, it's the free beer. It's the this, it's the that. I just absolutely loved the way we took it down to what it meant to be from this small town. Right. Yeah. But but by the way, just as you say that first statement that every drop of Shiner comes from Shiner, you have already differentiated the brand from every big beer in the world. It's it's right. already done. You know, I mean, Asha is this kind of a planner because I've seen her stuff. You will see in her briefs. Oh, the idea is already there. All we have yeah, to do right. is mine. She's, she's shown you where the oil is. Start drilling, buddy. Just turn on the camera and go there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, and, and and I've always loved that kind of creative too. To where yeah. Oh, yeah. if you can just go and discover, right? And and yeah. find those quirky little moments. Uh, I, I'd trade a great little moment for a big one any day long. Right. And I know a lot of people don't feel that way. No, I think I think sometimes our job is more archaeology. You know, it's like don't yeah. you don't need to reinvent the brand, reveal something. You know, we didn't write the line. Every drop of Shiner is made in Shiner. That was an old piece of advertising that was probably 40 years old when we went to their archives and we were looking through all their marketing materials and we came across it. So you're absolutely right. If the brand has a story and it has a heritage, almost always the answer is in there and has been looked past 20 years ago. Well, well, listen, when, when I meet Jay and Guy in heaven, they're going to be very appreciative because I've been trying to sell Built for the Human Race for the better part of 20 years now. Oh. Trying to sell it back to Nissan. Built for the Human Race. This was the best line for this brand ever. I would be hard-pressed to disagree with that assessment. <laughs> very good. You know, and, and we, could, we could talk for an hour and a half just about those great little, like, when Volkswagen did Drivers Wanted, right? Oh, yeah. Here's what I love so much about that. When they did it, they didn't really have great cars to talk about at the time. 
Right. And they had to pitch German engineering to a new audience. They niched the brand. Yep. Their first tagline had the longest on-ramp you've ever seen. Right. Their original tagline was on the road of life, there are drivers and there are passengers. Passengers and drivers. Yeah, passengers and drivers. But the brilliance is how they were able to erase the on-ramp after a year and a half. Yeah. So they went from having the world's longest tagline that really explained what German engineering meant to being two words. Listen, I, I'm with you. I, I think we should just do a grand reset where all the brands that had great taglines need to go back to them. They're still relevant. I, I talk to Tom Carter all the time. Where is the relentless pursuit of perfection? Now more than ever, people would love this idea. Well, the, one day it became the passionate pursuit of perfection. And oh, everything yeah, was lost in one word change, right? I'm actually writing a chapter in the second book about having the audacity to admit that the greatest tagline for the brand has already been written and be the guy who brings it back into the room. Now, don't try to restage I'd love to teach the world to sing, but just bringing back that tagline, that foundational thought. Like, I don't know if you've been on LinkedIn seeing how everybody's talking about Porsche's new work. Uh, No, not yet. Not yet. Because we we know the best Porsche ad ever was done by Shia Day. There are no getaway cars in Germany. Oh, I believe that in my heart of hearts. Bill Stanton, right? Yes. Yeah. And and we have to mention the visual, right? A a 911 with a siren on the roof that actually existed in Germany, right? To all of our young creatives listening, go do your research because (laughs) understanding these references and these campaigns. And I do think that that's quite a dope idea, actually, Cam, in terms of going back and and looking at the past versus always trying to sort of reinvent because it feels like even in our industry, every new person is trying to put their new stamp on it. And it feels... I don't know, dirty to say that something that you didn't do could maybe be better, but maybe you could take a different oh, take, I, uh, I don't, different spin I don't on believe, it. I've spent a whole lifetime recognizing the brilliance of somebody else's idea and just going, just stop for a second. I'm going to write down what you just said. Now I'm going to I'm going to leave the room for half an hour and bring back something for you to look at, right? And, yeah. and that's the thing that. God forbid clients can blurt out a line like that. It's the same thing as as your planner putting the idea right there in front of you. It's having the emotional maturity to go, well, that's the answer. How do we bring it to life in the best way? One of the themes that you've talked about a number of times, and, and I'm sure recurs in the book as well, is believing in yourself, but fighting for things and not accepting things on face value and digging a right. bit deeper, you know? And that's something as we think about the machine that is right. big shops, big clients, and how things have evolved in the name of efficiency and time and budgets and all of these things. Some of the things even that you've mentioned just nonchalantly in terms of going through the archives of the company, going to the actual brewery, interviewing people in the town. These things get cut now for budget reasons, right? Now these things are not something that the scope can factor in in terms of the number of hours that people can dedicate to working on a particular project. So then what ends up happening is that you get a brief and if you're lucky, a little bit of market research and folks got to sit in a vacuum and figure shit Mm. out and then present it in a vacuum. You know what I mean? And you don't necessarily have the luxury of time and and all of these extra things to immerse yourself sort of in that world of of what it could be. And I I definitely think, for example, working at a, a smaller shop or working on smaller clients or even just, you know, on the flip side, saying, you know what, let's cut the hours somewhere else, you know what I mean? And and let's allow for this to to occur is something that is needed. Because I do believe, like, even when you read textbooks or or learn or, or whatever, you know, I'm maybe not as young as I look, you know, so I remember, you know, I've worked on some, some big brands. I remember going to the factories and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that right. to me is why some of these old taglines and old campaigns were so insightful and so good and so clever in that way, because the people writing them use the product. Like how many campaigns now do people write where they don't use the products? They've never even been to the place that they're writing yep. tourism yep. ads about. They've you know, never driven the car that they're talking about. I think you bring up a really good point. And at some point we're gonna give we're gonna get to the advice thing, right? Yes. And, and, you know, you know, now. Exactly. What's going on? This is jumping into my head right now. So here's <laughs> here's the advice and it's cribbing 
a little bit from George Tannenbaum, hmm. who, who I think great is guy. what what a great guy. George um, is a friend of the show, no problem. <laughs> if you're going to be a creative person in advertising right now, be fast, be smart, trust your gut, because it's no longer about coming up with three print ads that will run for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. It's about coming up with 45 lines that can be used in the next 30 days. So right. I really think that I think now in the mode of a volunteer fire department, I'm fast. I try to hit to all fields equally. I try to land big ideas and I always leave loose ends on documents that I send. And I can't tell you how many times they read the end of the document, not below the graveyard, but they go, yeah, some of this throwdown stuff ends up becoming the ideas. Mm. It's just stunning to me that we try so hard to craft the perfect idea now. And now what we need to do is craft the perfect ideas with an S yeah. on the end, plural. It's not about telling one great joke. It's about having a whole act, right? That's, so I just great. think it's still as much fun as it was. I don't get calls very often to write Super Bowl spots. I'm okay with that. I get a lot of small brands who call me up and go, we can't figure out our voice. And that's always the sweet spot for me. And that goes back to something Kathy Heppenstall gave me years ago. Mm -hmm. She goes, when I'm freelancing on something, I always write a mantra. And then when I go in the meeting, even if it wasn't asked for, I said, well, I started wrapping my head around your brand by writing this mantra. And then you read the mantra and you get credit for understanding the brand on a deeper level before you even get to showing ideas. And what Kathy said to me, I can't tell you how many times I've got extended just because I did that in the meeting. <laughs> Very the best good. Best I've ever gotten. But it also tonally gets you into the neighborhood mm. without being, I'm not asking you to buy this. I'm not asking you to run this. I'm asking, let me tell you your story as I see it and tell me what you think of the story. And 95% of the time, they say, you just told me my story better than I can tell it. All right, that's because you're too close to it. You know, right. you just need that person with the fresh eyes to come in and, and, and boil it down. I'm a huge believer in writing mantras just to help you find the neighborhood. Listen, I we could talk to you all day. Yes. But we we have to uh, put a pin in it. But I just think, you know, this podcast, you just dropped so much gold. I, I think there's gold in this book, Chew With Your Mind Open. And I was thinking, God, we could keep talking to Cam. And I'm, then, it, then it just struck me, you're writing another book. So we're going to get to talk to you again. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. And, and the funny thing is, I now know what I'm writing. So the second, <laughs> the second one's going to come much quicker just because I have the format. And, and the funny That's thing great. is when I started sharing it with people, hmm. the thing I was most protective about was the format because I realized I found a format that really allows me to compartmentalize yeah. it and write a book that's infinitely skimmable. Yeah. I mean, no, nobody yeah. has to read this whole thing to get value from it. Absolutely. Or go A to Z. It, it works either way. So anyway, Chew With Your Mind Open is the book. Cameron Day is the man. Cam, so great to chat with you and catch up. And I just love your energy. And uh, thank you so much for, for doing this with us. Well, I can't thank you enough. And by the way, chewwithyourmindopen.com if you want to get a signed copy. Thanks, awesome. guys. Awesome. Thank you again for joining yeah, us and to our listeners. Please make sure you follow us on social media, the Disruptor Series, as well as visit disruptorseries.com. Check us out on LinkedIn for more on Camera Day. Thank you so much. Thanks. We'll see you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.